Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. We're recording today's show in the midst of the coronavirus lockdown, um, so I hope you're staying safe throughout this period. Good thing about the podcast is that I'd actually lined up a load of guests who I could only record remotely, and this is one of them. So today we're going to be talking to Aline Holsworth, who is an applied behavioural scientist who specialises in digital health research, uh, and she also focuses a lot on scientifically informed product design. Aline is the head of behavioural science at Pattern Health, which is a digital health platform designed to inspire and accelerate innovation and deliver more impact with less hassle, which is something we all need at the moment. She also co-founded The Behaviour Shop, which is a behavioural science advisory company and holds an appointment as principal of the Centre for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is Dan Ariely's applied behavioural science lab that helps people to be happier, healthier and wealthier. We're recording this today, as always, on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, which is still available to join. There's lots of things going on on their website at the moment. They're providing lots of advice and support through coronavirus. So if you want to join that, you can go to www.bsphn.org.uk and you can join for just £25 if you're working or £10 if you're a student or not working. And it's a really great time for you to go and join because it's full of people who are passionate about behavioural and social sciences and how they're applied in the real world you can meet academics you can meet people from industry and also people from health and public health so go there today www.bsphn.org.uk and see what it's all about so back to to Aline and the interview today it's it's a really interesting interview because Aline in her own words is a bit of a jack of all trades working across the academic side the industry side and healthcare which is really what this show's about. It's about how behavioural science is being done robustly, but how it's being applied in the real world. So I really hope you enjoy today's interview. I had a great time talking to her. She's a lot of fun to chat to. So over to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Real World Behavioural Science, Aline. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great stuff. So I'm really excited to have you on today. Um, and I should say that we, we're recording this in the middle of the lockdown period for coronavirus. Uh, so I'm sure that will come up and we'll touch on it a little bit. But the show is going to be a normal show because obviously this is going to be around for some time to come. And I want to hear a lot more about your general career than not, not just how you're responding to the coronavirus, Aline. So um, I'll get into straight into our first question, which is, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are now? Yeah, it sounds good. Um, so I was actually reflecting on, uh, I think part of coronavirus times is just, uh, uh, has brought about a general reflection of life and some existential topics have, have come into the mind in general. Mm. Um, but I was actually just reflecting about, um, my parents and, uh, sort of how I've, um, grown up uh, underneath them. And so my dad is a, an architect and my mom is a physician. And uh, for so long, I had felt like I was really pursuing this independent path, uh, you know, following my dreams and doing something that's really very different. You know, I studied psychology mm -hmm. and uh, now I now I call myself an applied behavioral scientist, which is some version of that uh, of that same thing. And, um, and and so I had this sort of strong illusion of uh, independence and <laughs> pursuing my 
my own path. But now when I actually reflect back and think about what I do as a behavioral scientist, I'm essentially a choice architect. Uh, architect. So you know, yep. my dad's an actual architect. I'm a choice architect. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm studying health decision making. So my mom is a, as a provider. Uh, you know, I just... I'm kind of like this perfect combination of the two of them, uh, even though the, you know, this is a pretty, a fairly new field. Um, and I feel like I'm really <laughs> paving a path here. Yeah. Um, it, it still goes back to that apple doesn't fall far from the tree sort of, uh, <laughs> yeah, quote. you just meandered in, into that, that sort of the same field as them, but, but combined yeah, it's weird. It, that, it's yeah. kind of wild when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, that is strange. Um, but, you know, I can tell you a little bit more uh, if you want about sort of how I got here and uh, the the long journey um, towards where I am now. Um, originally, well, did, well, did, My question oh. is, that did you choose to, to, did you actively choose to go into this field? Was it something that interested you and you headed towards it? Or did you find your way there uh, in a, a different path? Um, I mean, so. honestly, when I started out, the the field, the way that it exists now didn't exist. It was a very different kind of field. Um, and so originally I was studying psychology and was going down this, uh, sort of PhD to professor path, because that was really all that there was, if you were interested in human decision-making and, uh, and psychology, and there wasn't this, uh, this more applied field of, uh, of doing experiments in industry and understanding how to apply the findings of behavioral science into uh, in, in the real world. Um, and so that really kind of developed at the same time as I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and it really came about it in many uh, just sort of serendipitous ways. I happened to join Dan Ariely's lab when I was, uh, you know, graduating um, from a, as an undergrad studying psychology and really excited about doing research. I think Dan's lab is probably one of the few places that, you know, 11, 12 years ago were, was actually uh, collaborating with industry and creating some of these, uh, mm-hmm. some of these more um, academic industry, real world application kinds of projects. Um, so that was very lucky for me. And then I got into this, this whole um, world of really trying to, um, you know, both do, lab and field studies to get to these these sorts of converging uh, pieces of evidence where we would see, okay, how does this work in the very um, rigorous controlled environment of the lab? And then how does that, uh, does that actually translate into the real world? And what is the ecological validity of, you know, this particular concept or, or this mm-hmm. other one? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And, and you've mentioned the word real world there twice, which is right on brand for this show. Uh, <laughs> Um, and is that something I did that just that, for you <laughs> I know well I really appreciate it but I, I um I wondered is that something that's one of the driving things for you it, it being about applicability in the real world is that absolutely yeah and it, certainly something that's been so appealing about the way that the field has gone for me is um, getting out of these um, some more traditional uh, applications that feel very artificial to me and and not very meaningful and then um, seeing how, how you can actually take those findings and make them meaningful how can you see like well you know can we make a, a real world impact can we meaningfully change people's lives and improve them for the better that's the thing that really uh gets me going and i think that's the that's the thing that it, certainly at the center for advanced hindsight and pattern health is really the driving force behind all of our work 
Yeah. Okay. That's great. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the Center for Advanced Hindsight and for, and of Pattern Health, but uh, and also the Behavior Shop. If you want to talk about that as well, that's up to you. Sure. Um, so, certainly the the Center for Advanced Hindsight and the and Pattern Health are the big two. The Behavior Shop is uh, is a consulting company that uh, where we where sort of do talks and uh, and workshops with partners who are interested in uh, applying behavioral science to their organization, but less interested in doing research. Um, So I won't really, uh, really dive into that one. um, But it's it's always an option. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, the Center for Advanced Hindsight is, uh, this is Dan Ariely's behavioral science research lab. Um, We're a group of about uh, 50 scientists and not just scientists, but illustrators and public policy, uh, people with public policy backgrounds and advertising and like a really diverse group of designers and scientists who have come together to figure out how to do behavioral science in the real world. Um, and so this is a lab at Duke University. We work with um, large organizations where we do both of these types of studies, lab studies and field studies, um, and work with the partners often to um, do research directly with their constituents, whether it's their employees or their customers. And, and so we'll do things like tweak their product or, um, you know, A-B testing with emails and s- some, some like simpler versions of research and then some, you know, really large sort of clinical trial um, research projects on the other side of things. Um, so there's a huge diversity in size and type of project. And it's really, it's really tailored to the particular problem or question that we're trying to examine. Um, mm-hmm. So if there's a, if we're working with an organization that's interested in increasing vaccination, for example, um, then we'll, we might do um, a, a all sorts of um, converging studies where we'll um, test some uh, a concept on uh, you know, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, and then we'll also uh, send uh, send out different um, flyers and messages and see, like, well, if we, you know, if we frame. Um, the flu shot in one way or another, then how do we, what sorts of uh, take up do we, do we get? And then we might do a, go to Duke university and do another study with students. And then at the end of the day, we have all of these different uh, pieces of evidence that kind of combine to form the larger picture. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, uh, that's a really cool thing that we're doing now that I think wasn't very popular 10 years ago where we would, we would just do the five lab studies and publish the paper and then hope someone reads it. I think it's very different now. (laughs) I think that's really interesting. You said, I want to unpack some of that because I love the fact that there's, you mentioned illustrators and public policy and marketers and scientists all in one place. That's to me sounds brilliant. Um, and that interaction across all of those different disciplines is really important. And you, you can see that in the way that Dan talks actually about, about you know, the field. Um, uh, just two things I wanted to ask you about. One of them was you mentioned Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Really quick technical point. Could you just tell us what that means, the, the Amazon's <laughs> Mechanical Turk? Sure. Um, so there's, uh, this is just one example of a platform where uh, research participants can uh, go online and get paid to do a, a very short study. Um, mm-hmm. And I just threw out Amazon Mechanical Turk because I think it's very widely used, but there are all sorts of other 
uh, other platforms like Positly and Prolific, and I think some some MTurk spinoffs as well. Um, but yeah. it, it's just a way to create a, a very short, simple, say like a Qualtrics survey. Qualtrics is a platform where you can create a, a survey. It's also not the only <laughs> platform where you can do that. We we do a similar thing in in Pattern Health, um, and uh, and get a really fast turnaround um, in research. Whereas it, sometimes if you are trying to use your own customers, you might have to go through your own marketing department and uh, have lots of layers of red tape. Whereas if you can just find uh, a pool of, say, 8,000 anonymous participants and pay them for their mm. participation, then uh, then sometimes that that's just a very fast and easy way to test something. Great. Okay. I just wanted a clarification on the mechanical Turk. I'm sure lots of people won't know what a mechanical Turk is. <laughs> um, so, so the other thing is that it's, um, A, I'm very jealous that you work in, in uh, the advanced, the Center for Advanced Hindsight. It's, uh, and with Dan, because Dan was one of the reasons that I was really interested in behavioral economics in the first place. So I'm very jealous. You're not alone. I know. I know. Um, and the other thing was what, what I wanted to unpack a little bit about what your day-to-day role within there was. So what was what is your role within um, the, the, the center and like what, what does day-to-day look like for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I would say one of the, the most consistent things about working with Dan and being at the Center for Advanced Hindsight is there is no consistency. <laughs> so there's right. no like every day. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much torn from one kind of uh, project to another and, and some days doing something that looks absolutely nothing like behavioral science at all, but, you know, still goes towards the cause and, and uh, ends up being part of the job anyway. But I, I would say that my job at the Center for Advanced Hindsight is really um, sort of structured around uh, my role in strategy and marketing and operations and some of these more organizational uh, leadership types of uh, mm-hmm. types of roles. Um, and so I work uh, with our sponsors and um, make sure that we're getting the kind of impact that they're expecting by working with the center. Um, I work to, to make sure that the, the research that we're doing is actually aligned with uh, our mission in helping people be happier, healthier, and wealthier uh, at home and abroad, um, and working with the researchers to make sure that they're getting what they uh, expect to be getting out of this. And, and then, the you know, so that's part of the operational aspect. You know, what are our mm-hmm. research processes? Are we uh, consistent in how we uh, get our IRB approval and our pre-registration? And all of those, um, you know, very mundane but absolutely essential things to doing rigorous research, uh, both in the lab and the field. I think um, someone has to kind of uh, make sure that, that that's happening across the board. And so um, I work with both our health team and our financial decision-making teams to do that. And those are the two um, major buckets of research topics the, in the health and the financial domain. And so what do you class yourself? Are you... Are you- an academic are you industry are you health-based because that's that's the three target areas of this show and you seem to encompass all of those so i mean what which do you lean towards more do you have one that you lean towards more i i really if i had to pick one of those i would say i can't (laughs) i I just (laughs) there yeah i don't identify I'm such a weirdo in this sense. Um, I, I'm definitely not an academic. Um, I have so much respect for act for real academics and could never do what they do. (laughs) And, uh, I'm certainly in an academic environment and have, 
uh, I am inspired by the methods of, of academia. I don't have the kind of publication record to, <laughs> to right. put me anywhere in those, uh, in that category. Um, and certainly, you know, I don't even have a PhD, so it, it, I don't feel comfortable, uh, claiming to be a part of that club. Um, and then I, I think, you know, on the applied or the industry side, I fit well enough in there. Um, but I feel like so much of a scientist that mm. I'm not sure that I fit into that club either. And then in terms of healthcare, um, yeah, sure. I'm studying health decision-making and I'm working in healthcare. Um, but w- when I, you know, when I'm collaborating with the, uh, through pattern health in particular, uh, with the providers and the care managers and the research coordinators and the, the people who are, really on the front lines of healthcare and seeing what they do. It's really hard for me to say that I'm doing what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really, I'm really in the middle of all of these things. <laughs> and that's a good place to be. I mean, you, you're sort of a, a good conduit perhaps between them all because they, they might not sort of speak the same language otherwise, if it wasn't for people like you. Yeah, uh, I certainly that's try. Good. That's good. Um, so I want to obviously we're not going to talk about, as I said, we're not going to talk about coronavirus too much, but I did hear you on the um, Behavioural Groove show, which I was also on recently. I was, I loved spending time with, with um, Tim and Kurt, and I listened to the show and thought, this is, yeah, I've got to get a lean on. Um, oh, that's awesome. Generally, <laughs> but, but also I thought uh, we'll, we'll do a, a small piece on, on, on the, uh, you know, some of the things that you were talking about on that show were really interesting. So how, is, how has coronavirus affected you personally, but also the work that you're doing um, and the content that you're putting out? at the moment yeah it's definitely been uh, a whirlwind in terms of you know work in many ways both in terms of our processes and how we work together you know there was always a little bit of you know some days we work from home and you know Mm -hmm. we we have our we're we're very accustomed to zoom calls and uh collaborating remotely but um going to a hundred percent of that is still a little bit rough in terms of process. And then in terms of the actual work that we're doing, um, it's been very interesting to see how um, many barriers in the healthcare have just been broken down so swiftly. Like you, mm. you see, we're talking to our, um, to our customers about things, initiatives that they've been trying to push forward for some of them, 10 years <laughs> they've been wow. trying to do. And then suddenly, I mean, it's like, a terrible silver lining, but also just like, I guess this is what it took, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways it's just like, wow, I like, I, it's so hard to believe. Um, but just suddenly things are, things are changing so much. And, and, uh, um, one piece of, uh, <laughs> one way that this has been spoken about is just that the default has been flipped. So yeah. the, before coronavirus, it was such that, um, the default, everything is in person, clinical care is in person, uh, health research is in person. And like, yeah, hopefully one day we can supplement this with some sort of digital, uh, you know, version or, Mm -hmm. you know, have something for people to do on their, you know, on their smartphones in addition. And, and just in the past uh, month or a couple of months or so, we've seen this conversation really change so that now it's, well, we have to have a digital offering, <laughs> you know, Obviously, like that's, yeah. that's the first, that's the core. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we can someday have an in-person element like that, you know, that could be nice. And, and it's just like 
kind of mind boggling <laughs> to see how this is just switched uh, so yeah. quickly and so meaningfully. And I think it's such a positive change. And, and do you think that's one that will last beyond the end? Cause there'll be a, there'll be a, the next period after this sort of lockdown period. Uh, yeah. I'm keeping an eye on what's happening in the States. So it's very interesting watching what, what Trump's doing over there. But what, what or more, more or governors actually, more, more than anything. But what, um, there'll be a period after of sort of in, extended social distancing, but not maybe lockdown and then, and then hopefully some level of normal, whatever that means. What do you see the, being the sort of the, the progression of that? Do you think that that will last or will it sort of gradually uh, ebb away? I think in general, our collective memory is extremely short. And I, I, I see, you know, we, you know, we know, we know a lot about affective forecasting and how we think we're going to feel the pain of bad things for much longer than we actually do. And on the flip side, we think that we're going to feel the joy of good things. So winning the lottery or something much, much longer than we actually do. But, you know, you check that same person uh, back in a year, whether they've won the lottery or, you know, gotten into a debilitating car accident and they're at the same level as they were before. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not saying this is a perfect uh, application of this finding, but I think in general, we, uh, you know, when we're in a, in a hot state, we think that this is the only way. And then when we're in a cold state, uh, you know, when we're not feeling that visceral uh, emotion and we're not dealing with all the challenges of being in that actual context, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really last. Um, and I think that there's an important exception to this actually. Um, and that's in some of the structural changes that are harder to, uh, to reverse. So if you see someone who has, a um, you know, a, a mindfulness program for cancer patients. Um, and in, it used to be in person and now it's moved online. Well, now we have all the benefits of that program being online. Why would we move it back? It doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense to do that. And so the, the kinds of concrete actions that we take now that, um, don't make sense to reverse or, you know, that it takes effort to reverse. Yeah. Um, those are the things that I think will last if, if we're thinking, uh, oh, people are going, people are going to retain the same motivation um, that they do now to do things like hand washing or you know whatever the thing is in mm. six, nine, twelve months. Um, I, I think that is a, a very optimistic and extremely unlikely. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, and I, I wonder a couple of things there. With with, for example, Zoom meetings, for example, or or video chats of of all man, manner. Um, that exist where people were traveling long distances to have meetings i think you know there's a financial reason now if if the meetings have been no less effective or only slightly less effective then there's a financial reason not to send people and an ecological reason of course as well and i I wonder if some of that at least will will sort of remain or there'll there'll be like a a moderation in the level level of physical meetings that we're asking people to go to in the future yeah Um, and I, i wonder as well about what what was motivated that like that could have happened ages ago but there was no you know it was too much to try and get everyone to shift the way they were working whereas now it's been forced what will be the outcome afterwards will it will it carry on because now we've done the the sort of live test and we've seen it's actually not that bad (laughs) yeah now we know it can work and uh i mean but but it works to an extent right i think there there are still a lot of um 
downfall downsides to working remotely uh, all yeah. the time at least i think there if there you can make a really good argument for working remotely um, <laughs> two days a week or mm-hmm. something um and I, and I think that's actually a pretty common model in some places but i think 100% of the time is difficult and then uh so so there might be a new market for office sharing where this is, you know, this is our office for three days of the week and it's someone else's office for the Mm -hmm. other two days of the week. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be really lovely. Uh, aside from, (laughs) I I can already imagine the kinds of dramas, you know, when your stapler goes missing and (laughs) aside from that, issues there, but but the principle is good and uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens out of the, out of the end of that. Um, so, so, uh, that, that let's not dwell on, on coronavirus because I think it's, it's been, it's interesting to hear some of uh, your thoughts about that. And and if you want to hear more of your thoughts about that, you can go and find that on, um, Tim and Kurt show behavioral grooves. Uh, you did a nice show on that a couple of weeks ago. So that was great people should go and find, people should check that out anyway actually <laughs> um but uh, i want to come back to where you are in your uh, career and in the industry so how how is behavior change or behavioral science being used in uh, the your industry at the moment uh very sparsely mm-hmm. uh, so i would say in digital health in particular there uh you know <laughs> we're trying to change this with pattern health but Certainly, when we look at the landscape of other uh, other products that are out there that are uh, attempting to change behavior, even explicitly behavior change products, there's very, very little. And you can find <laughs> hundreds of literature reviews uh, supporting this thesis that um, when you actually do a scan of the of the apps and products and services out there, there's very little in the way of behavior change, um, and. Uh, or, or sorry, uh, in the way of, um, uh, let's say, evidence-based behavior change. There's a lot of uh, claims that, that, that things are either backed by behavioral science or, you know, this product will help you uh, be more calm and relaxed. Like, well, what, what is it actually using any of these techniques that we know are shown to make people be more relaxed? Uh, if you actually look into it, the answer is generally, you know, sadly, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, it's not a very uh, uh, bright view of the world, but I think um, I'm hoping that this is changing. It's certainly mm-hmm. what we're what we're trying to uh, espouse at, uh, at Pattern Health, and you know, also through the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Um, and it certainly feels like the uh, the field in general is changing, though I think healthcare in particular is lagging behind other industries. So you see a lot of behavioral science in uh, the financial industry. Um, You see a lot of it in marketing more generally and, and almost everything except for healthcare sort of gotten onto the bandwagon. Um, And do you think that's because there is a really clear and, and obvious um, return for the investment of using behavioral science in those. Like you can see a financial return, for example, quite clearly because you can run tests quite easily uh, in the financial sector or in tech generally. Whereas in health, there's lots of mediating and complicated factors that might sort of confound our ability to easily see that it's the behavioral science or it's this application of this thing and not this thing that's had the impact. Yeah. Um, I think the, uh, I don't think it's actually harder to see this in health. I, I, you know, I think you could make an argument that health is more complicated. So, like maybe this infrastructure is not really set up. Um, but I think that the reasons that behavioral science have not made it into healthcare are more um, 
you know, due to bureaucracy and uh, risk aversion in in the giant healthcare systems that really govern what happens in healthcare, um, much more than the potential of behavioral science. I think the real potential is huge. And if you look at, you know, the importance of adherence to something as simple as adherence to medication or, um, you know, getting people to, uh, or the importance of, uh, you know, diet and exercise, these things that could actually uh, if one were to engage in them appropriately, actually stave off an illness or, you know, make you not even have to take a medication. Um, these are the kinds of things that, that I think, um, healthcare has been a little short-sighted with respect to, or has felt like this doesn't really fall into our domain or, or, or we don't understand it. So (laughs) we're not going to go into that space. Uh, And I think there's also been some ignorance in terms of, oh, you know, I'll just tell my patients to do these things and that's enough. If they don't do it, then that's like their fault and their problem. Um, And I think that's not a a prevailing view. I think it's, um, you know, there's a lot of the healthcare systems are overburdened and uh, it's a huge task to ask people, uh, you know, physicians who are trained in medicine to also be behavioral scientists, (laughs) like behavioral scientists understand human behavior and motivation and, you know, why people do the things that they do. And so bringing those experts into the healthcare domain um, is probably the best way in in forging these collaborations, not asking healthcare systems to, uh, you know, suddenly know everything that others who, who, uh, who are experts in this field, um, are working to understand. And even behavioral scientists don't understand everything. That's why we continue experimenting and, and trying to understand, you know, what sorts of interventions will work in, in different mm-hmm. situations. It's a really good point. I, I, mean, I mean, sell it to us then. What, what, can you think of a really good example of how behavioral science has been used in healthcare um, and, and it's had a, a big impact and it's, you know, and it's undeniable? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, so the, the uh, one of my favorite examples is actually this uh, almost unintentional study that came out of UPenn, um, which was where they, um, I think it was just like someone toying around with the, the EHR. This is the electronic health record. And uh, in terms of how physicians order their prescriptions. And uh, so they, they switched to the default. It used to be such that if a physician ordered a branded medication, then it was filled as branded. Um, and so then they, they switched the default where they actually required a, a new checkbox where um, the default would be that if, uh, if the, this box were not checked, the um, prescription will, would be filled as generic. But mm-hmm. this could always be overridden, of course. If the provider checked the checkbox, then it would be filled um, exactly as ordered. So if they said that it was branded, it would be filled as branded. If they said that it was, be, that it was generic, it would be filled as generic. And, and if you just look at this chart of the, um, the level of... Um, of <laughs> of generics versus branded prescriptions being filled in this time period, you see um, every single type of medication, I think except for one, but it's still jumped about 20 percentage points, um, moving to almost 100% generic. And mm-hmm. the cost, the, the, the savings cost to the healthcare system of this 
tiny, tiny, tiny change, this like very minor choice architecture <laughs> change yeah. that's really facilitating, um, it's helping doctors do what they already want to do. Um, that if you ask physicians, do you think that um, you know that that people should pay more for the same exact medication? They will say no. If they say you know is this generic equivalent just as good as the branded that you you know wrote down here? Um, they'll say yeah. yes, it's just as good, and we should go with branded. But for all sorts of reasons and frictions, and you know maybe the the branded version is more salient in, in their heads because of lots of advertising and, mm -hmm. and such. Um, so this is one of my favorite examples of uh, very, very small behavioral intervention of just changing the choice architecture, um, flipping the default, turning into an incredible um, savings. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good example. And and uh, one that's overriding quite a lot of, of assumptions, actually, as well. If, if you think about all the money and time that's spent with medical reps and people like that in, in the States going out and, and selling those drugs, just a simple... <laughs> Simple change on a form can, can override Just it all. Just a simple change. Amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. amazing. Good example. That's a great example. No problem. Um, well, uh, Aline, I wanted to um, ask you, I, I think this might be too broad. Most people have a, a very specific answer for this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How, how does your work translate into the real world? Because uh, you've mentioned that a few times. It's, I'm really getting into now who it affects. So who are the people that are, are benefiting from the work that you're doing and how it affects people's behavior in the real world? Yeah, this is great. Um, and so I think one of the things that uh, is so cool about pattern health is that <laughs> this is a behavioral science uh, informed digital health platform that is uh, affecting people in the real world. So uh, the partners that Pattern Health works with are healthcare systems, uh, researchers, clinicians, um, people who are in the healthcare space who have patients and participants and are trying to um, improve the lives of these people. And that's their whole motivation behind creating uh, a digital health program. And so uh, they come to Pattern Health and they say, like, hey, we have this idea for, you know, helping people who've just undergone uh, joint surgery, uh, recover from that surgery. And, you know, these are the exercises, the physical therapy exercises that we would like them to do. Um, here are some mindfulness exercises that we, you know, we also think would be beneficial to them. And, you know, we have these other, uh, these other surveys to track their progress over time. Um, and then as a, as a platform, we can say, that's great, let's do it. And, and my job as the behavioral scientist in this uh, this whole uh, setup is to to both influence the creation of that program. So mm -hmm. to say, all right, what are the behaviors that are really important to you? Is it that people are um, doing these exercises every day? What you know, can we like really nail down the key behavior? And then how can we um, design this program to really incentivize uh, that behavior? What are the tools in our toolkit that are most appropriate for this behavior and this context in this population? Um, and and how do we uh, you know <laughs> use all of the uh, all of the resources that we have to really design the best possible program? And then not stopping there, but let's actually test this. Is there an experiment that we can run? Um, you know, there's not always an experiment that we can run. There's a lot of dependencies that fall into this, but where we can, that's obviously uh, the best thing to do. And then the platform itself, uh, I bake these behavioral science principles into the design uh, across the board. So everyone who uses the platform has a, a smooth onboarding process. Everyone has uh, has a very clear to-do list of 
things that they have to do. Their medications are integrated with their electronic health record. Um, everything is very seamless and easy, as easy as it can be, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, you have to do <laughs> painful things in healthcare you, or, or things that are um, uncomfortable. If you have to give yourself an insulin shot, you might not enjoy that process. But if there are ways that we can make it more enjoyable, then we'll try and do that. Yeah. And it, it all comes down to how are we reducing the friction um, all of these things that get in the way of people doing the right behaviors and how do we increase the fuel? How do we make that more enjoyable? Uh, how yeah. can we make it more fun where possible and so on? That's, that's really interesting. I think it's a, um, great to sort of take a really holistic view of what it is that you're trying to do and, and go as broad as you, you seem to. And it's interesting because we've, we've just pivoted all of our service. We deliver weight management and, and behavior change services in person um you know with exercise <laughs> or you and, used to do them in person, used to do them in person. <laughs> we've le- recently pivoted everything online which is interesting because a yeah. lot of our team who are um great you know we've got nutritionists and dietitians and some behavior change experts but give, depending on who they are and what their what their experience is they 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 have sort of looked at it as an opportunity to take what they've done in the physical session and, and just transpose it, in, you know, d- directly into the online. And what we're trying to do is understand what's different about the online and what's different about um, people not walking in, for example, and not having to be visually seen by you every week because that's not part of the platform that we've, we've pivoted onto. Um, and we're just trying to do unpick some of those things you mentioned ourselves, actually, of what are now the, the issues that people are facing and what, the, what does adherence look like? What does engagement look like in between sessions when, you know, we haven't got the same um, overt and also subconscious inputs that we had when we were running physical services? It's, it's such a fascinating area to try and get. To. I might keep you on the line, actually, and, I, and yeah, if you're sure. about that afterwards. Yeah, I think... Or one thing that one thing that in this I, I also fi- find this translation of um, you know things that might work in person to things that that uh, you have to do to translate to an online environment that's a really interesting question in itself and I think one of the big assumptions that you have to put into everything that you're doing in a digital version is that people's attention spans are very very short and you you can't assume that anyone is going to, you know, read a paragraph or like you, you don't have their captivated attention in the same way as say you're, you know, in a meeting and you're talking face to face, like people are not, uh, engaging in digital health programs in that same way. So it's, it's Mm. really such a, uh, there's a lot of differences, um, just based on the medium itself. I totally agree. And even, even you know, we've been doing some co-production work. So we've got some people who are on some of our, our pilot services and we're talking to them about what our challenges are and what what what, you know, what do they think about those challenges and stuff. And one of them that I, I hadn't even thought really about was you, we, we have a video of the person who's delivering the session, but everyone else, so there's 20, 30 people in there, you don't have videos of everyone on there. They all put into the chat box or they do polls or whatever else you, you're doing to, to interact with them. But writing back a response is a very different part of the brain and, and experience than it is just saying it back to someone uh, apart from the sort of you know it's a bit more clunky because you've got to go through those two systems it's just people just don't necessarily write in the same way that they would just converse with someone so even yeah. that small thing is a big issue um, yep. but what we found is really um and we're, we're just trying to work out how to how to sort of frame this for the team really is this is a completely different intervention. This isn't busybodies as, as we were delivering it, you know, our gutless service for men or our busy ladies or whatever it is. 
it's yeah. not the same service digitally. It's it's a completely different intervention with really different inputs and outcomes. And we're we're, we're right at the start of trying to learn um, what the differences are and what what the differences you know how do we have to structure those to be able to sort of get not the same outcomes, different outcomes, and use different techniques to get them. It's really really fascinating, but you know could be quite a long winded process. Yeah. <laughs> So, Alina, I wanted to ask you a bit more uh, about what you think we should be doing more of in the real world to benefit from good behavior change science. Yeah, uh, and I think that uh, sharing of our work is probably the the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I you know, spend a lot of my time just figuring out ways to communicate what we're doing. Um, and I think traditionally, um, the, the sort of academic background in me was, that was less important, um, it, it, not to me personally, uh, I'll say, but, but certainly to um, collaborators and, and what it felt like the field in general was as soon as you had published something, even though it's, uh, it, it's really kind of limited to the ivory towers. And you know that even within the ivory towers, Almost no one is going to read your uh, peer-reviewed article. Um, and so they, that, they, is it six people on average read? I think uh, it's less than people. that. I think And it's like your mother and yeah, yeah your grandmother. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and your advisor. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a pretty depressing finding for sure. Um, but I think that uh, now that we're doing uh, more experiments in the real world, I think the the need to share those is has never been more important. And I think we should you know do both more sharing of studies that are done uh, in the not real world, you know, in the lab, but also share more sharing of our field studies. And I think one unfortunate uh, characteristic of industry is that. Um, contrary to academia, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's concerns about intellectual property or uh, competition, like, oh, if I tell everyone about this, you know, how uh, how much my behavioral intervention improved adherence in this in this experiment, everyone is going to copy me and, you know, get their own, <laughs> get their own version mm -hmm. of accountability buddies or something. And it's just, I think that's very misguided. Um, and uh, you see, as a result, some some organizations not really sharing the kinds of very cool things that they're doing. Um, so I, I, uh, I made it a part of my mission to make sure that I continue to do this sharing. And when we run a cool experiment, we talk about it um, and talk about, you know, how something might apply even when we haven't run an experiment and encourage people, other people to run experiments and, and find that evidence. Um, and so I think, yeah, yeah, like there's, there's just, uh, the world of behavioral science is still contained to, uh, a pretty, uh, a pretty small group of enthusiasts that, mm. uh, you know, we talk to each other and <laughs> we really love yeah. what we do, but I think we have to, uh, do more appealing to the masses and sharing what we're doing, um, in ways that communicate very complex uh, problems and solutions and just concepts in, in very simple ways or as simple as we can make them, uh, yeah. to, to make them easily digestible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that we, we are making this show on behalf of the behavioral science and public health network. So they're a network who exists to sort of bring 
people like us together and and share ideas talk about uh, you know uh, the, the behavioral science that exists behavior change science that exists around uh, the world and particularly how it's being applied in different places and what the outcomes of that are and and to connect people if they you know there's people in there who who are at the beginning of their career there's people who are there who are really really senior and uh, are you a member of that i don't know if, if you will have come across it too much but i i urge you to join it it's, it'll cost you about 30 or 40 dollars it's 25 pounds over here so it's, it's really cheap but it's a great network full of behavioral scientists people from public health and health generally and um academics uh, you know and people from industry so right up your street i think you'd enjoy sort of, you know some of the some of the i mean the events are mainly uk based but there's there's a massive network. <laughs> that's but, okay nothing's in person nowadays anyway. that's true yeah no, who's ever going to go out of the house again <laughs> yeah. I don't know. no that's great i anytime that uh, that you see all of these interdisciplinary efforts i think that is that you know also the right direction to go yeah absolutely and it, and it really is and it's one of those things where you know when you're talking to people you could be talking to say say like tim chadbourne or, or who's the um, head of the behavioral insights team at phe or um susan mickey who's who's um you know the a professor of, of psychology at um ucl in in london and the creator of the behavior change world they could be at these events and they'll just talk to everyone the same as everyone else they're just a member of the network it's it's a really great place to be it, it certainly progressed me a lot you know in terms of speaking to these people and then you know i'm here making this show with with pretty much no behavioral science qualifications other than applying it that's, that's it <laughs> there you um, go <laughs> here we are um, but but the the thing about sharing is is a great point and it's something that we've certainly experienced and how do you get because it's industry that often have the money to, you know, do the do the work and link up with the universities to do the work, and then they want to protect the IP, which is understandable. And I, I run a business, so I I understand why you would want to protect that. But how do you how do you incentivize sharing when there is this sort of underlying concern about um, giving away IP? Yeah, well, from a from a purely practical perspective um I, you know i do a lot of uh, proselytizing about the importance of this and you know how we care about changing the world and if we don't do this we're not going to change the world and it's very inconsistent with our uh, our mission if we don't do this and so very early on uh, in pattern health everyone kind of got on board with this and so it's just been a very important part of what we do um and then for uh, at the center for advanced hindsight um we we we're a little bit uh, lucky in that we have a lot of organizations that are very interested in working with us, and so um, in some ways we get to say um, we get to make the rules in yeah. in that sense and say we're only interested in academic collaborations that could lead to publication and sharing, and we don't do the kind of work where uh, where this where you know we don't work for you. We're a university. It doesn't it doesn't yeah, make yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's just not part of the the business model. So it's not even considered. That's that's a really fortunate position for you, given that your personal sort of mission is and your organisation mission is to share. Um, it's a, it's a, it's admirable actually. It's something that's um, I think we can all aspire to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of selfishness to it as well. I like uh, I, I love writing about my work, and I get a lot of pleasure from having other people read it. So it's not it's not mm. purely <laughs> out of goodwill. Well, you didn't have to say that. You. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be you. honest here. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, well, I mean, let's talk about what you're excited about. What, what are you most excited about in behavior change, behavior science at the moment? Oh, my. Uh, 
I don't know if excited yeah, is. Let's try and hone it a bit. I can imagine you're you're quite an excitable person. I can tell. So just <laughs> just one thing, <laughs> just one thing. Uh, well, yeah. So I don't know if excited is the right word for this, but um, I'm very interested and intrigued to see how uh, sort of in the long term the the coronavirus pandemic plays out in terms of behavior change. And I mm-hmm. think like just thinking about the the length at which we can um, consistently get people to engage in social distance or sorry, physical distancing mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, s- sheltering in place. These are behaviors that are very, very unusual, but we've adopted pretty Quickly, I, I've honestly been um, most surprised in the opposite direction that you know that we have been so successful at yeah. these efforts. Um, and I would say that I'm most curious to see um, both in terms of you know how long can we hold, keep this up? Um, that's one huge empirical question. Yeah. Um, and and also you know what do we as behavioral scientists recommend when people start? going outside again um and can we truly make an impact because i think we can but do we have the right levers to actually enact the the interventions that we think will be effective in those situations and what do you think has been the the driver of that adherence to to advice is it altruistic in nature i.e i don't want to go and affect other people or is it a little bit more selfish I, i don't want to get it or is it a mixture of both I think I think we're seeing that there's a lot more altruism and thinking about others and certainly moral framing of messages uh, seems to have a, a higher impact or greater impact on people's intentions to stay home. Um, and several experiments have come out just in the past couple of months showing results that are consistent with that. Um, I don't think that's the only thing. I, I think that um, certainly the social norms have been very powerful and the visibility of, uh, of going outside. So everyone can see if you're, uh, you know, and there's also, there's also, you know, everything's shut down. So you don't have a whole yeah, lot of options. Everyone is staying inside. So there's the social proof and there's nothing that you really can do unless you're going to be a huge jerk and like protest. Yeah. <laughs> like, Let's not do that. No. Um, that is going yeah. on in, in the States at the moment, isn't it? Very small examples that are amplified by the media. The majority yeah. is certainly uh, certainly staying inside. Yeah, Stay home. Interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting to see what comes out of the end of uh, end of this. Um, yeah, I think actually the that there's a corollary to the to the the minority of protesters that are that are very vocal, and that's anti-vaxxers. So yeah. back uh, before coronavirus, one of the the big things that we've been uh, thinking about, certainly at the Center for Advanced Hindsight, is. Um, how do we dampen these very few but very loud voices of people who are opposed to like, the most ingenious invention of all time? Yeah, um, yeah. And and how it, it's just such an interesting problem to to see um, the difference between uh, in person and online communication of these things. A lot of the messaging around. Um, anti uh, anti vaxxers and sort of uh, the skepticism around vaccination have been through online forums where um, voices can be amplified much more easily than in the real world because you can see oh there's just like one lone dude standing mm-hmm. at that podium mm-hmm. shouting whereas uh, when something is 
shared on the internet, it can uh, feel much larger than uh, than it really is. And I, I wonder how that's going to also play out with the social norms around uh, around physical distancing and staying at home um, mm. with coronavirus, right? You can see now that everything has moved online, uh, messages are just communicated very differently uh, in that environment. It's definitely going to be very, very interesting to see. Um, there's all all sorts of interesting areas to sort of keep your eye on after this this period's over, digitally and in and in person stuff. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. Um, so, Alina, I want to move us on to you personally and, and how you use your knowledge of behaviour change in your personal life. Sure, uh, I would say that uh, I've. I've uh, I used to be much more of a zealot in terms of how I how I applied behavioral science to my own life, um, mm-hmm. but I still, uh, and I think I think actually that transition has reflected uh, me coming into myself a little bit more and being comfortable with with me just being a person rather than yeah. uh, you know like this is a hundred percent of my identity. Now I feel like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a smart person who studies human beings as a behavioral scientist, which is my job. Um, so I think that's a little, that's a little, uh, you know, fun fact about how things have changed over time and just how I feel that I've mm. matured, you know, not everything has to be behavioral science. Um, but that, but that, that comes with confidence, doesn't it? Like once, when you come into yeah. it, you're sort of a bit of, bit of, um, uh, imposter syndrome and stuff. And so you just li- live it everywhere all the time. And then it's after you get confident, yeah. you, you, you don't need to, you realize you don't need to do that all the time. It's, yeah. I don't have to constantly prove myself no, now, no, but I, I feel like I have affirmation from uh, other people and mm. uh, yeah, I just, it, I feel more comfortable in my own skin. That's mm. probably only happened in the past couple of years or so. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it it's cool. I think it's promising for those who still feel that anxiety to know that it might, it will probably go away someday yeah, if you just yeah. keep at it. Um, yeah. Okay. But um, I will say that it's not it's not that it's not that I don't apply behavioral science to my life at all. I certainly have some. Uh, uh, I I would say in the health domain in particular, I have done the most uh, using uh, insights from behavioral science to to influence my own behavior. Um, certainly with exercise is a, is a big one. Um, mm-hmm. so I have some accountability buddies, both in terms of, uh, well, I used to have a, a, a group, um, text chat where, uh, my friends and I would go running on Thursdays and I'm like very much not a runner, mm-hmm. um, and I don't enjoy it at all before, during, or after. Um, but somehow committed to going running every week. And so go to this running club with my friends, you know, we're constantly checking in with each other to make sure that, uh, that we're going. And so this social pressure has been very powerful for mm-hmm. me to, to actually go. Um, of course, still now don't enjoy that, it? Uh, no, I still don't enjoy it. In oh, fact, now no. that now that uh, running clubs are closed, uh, I haven't really, I haven't been running. So that's you weird because you see people, you, you see people running everywhere now. Like it's, you, the roads are chocked full of them. Well, over here at least. Yeah, I mean, and I have gone. I've gone on a walk every day. I've gone biking. Uh, I think I've been on two runs in the past uh six weeks <laughs> so less than less than normal oh well uh, you know yeah. life looks very different at this point it so it does it does I, i'm ready for a, a fresh start <laughs> i need a quarantine yeah. fresh start to get back into it 
Well, um, Aline, I, I, that's, it's been really fascinating talking to you. And I, and I wanted to um, give you an opportunity to talk about your um, where people can go to find out a little bit more about your work uh, or, or papers or, or other things that you're doing at the moment. Uh, are you on social media for people to come and find you? I am, yes. Uh, so if you search for Aline Holsworth, you can find all of the things. Um, I have sort of a pseudo website. <laughs> if you go to AleneHolsworth.com, I think I'm hoping in the future it will turn magically turn into a real website. Uh, right now, Wait, what, it's, can I ask you a question? What is a pseudo website? I'm oh, <laughs> not sure I know. Uh, <laughs> it's so I, I purchased the domain AleneHolsworth.com and I've directed it to a medium post in which I update uh, things like podcast interviews reviews and uh, writing pieces and uh, other sorts of appearances so it's just a list you know it's a list of things that (laughs) that you can find about me um so yeah it's definitely not very sophisticated uh but um social media are you on twitter and and linkedin and stuff I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. Uh, I'm at Aline Holsworth at Twitter. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I've been doing kind of a cool thing on LinkedIn. I'm not sure if I should share this, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, where my new LinkedIn contacts, I've been arranging um, group chats where everyone who adds me in a certain period of time, I'm doing maybe two a month or so. I have mm-hmm. a, I invite them to uh, one of a few um, sort of introductory chats where everyone, you know, tells me who they are and some interesting things. And then we just uh, have a free for all conversation about whatever is inspiring us at the time. Um, and so that I've found, you know, especially in these times to be yeah. particularly enjoyable. I also think that that's a really good idea anyway, because it's not just, I mean, the number of people that have added me and then immediately tried to sell me something. I, I wish I had oh. done something similar. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, um, you got to be quite selective. Most people don't think. last long. Nah, you got to be quite selective on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you end up just endlessly getting hounded. I think. Um, great, well, Aline. Thanks so much for your time. It's been really fascinating talking to you. I loved hearing about all of the, you know, the different roles that you've got in Patent Health and in um, the Advanced Center for No. <laughs> Center for Advanced Hindsight. You got it. What she said. Um, But yeah, I I really enjoyed hearing about all your different roles. And I really like, I I think you're perfect for this show because, you know, this show is all about bringing together those elements of the academic stuff, the the real academic rigor and evidence base with a practical application in the real world and the fact that you said real world in the first you know two 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 minutes so many times is, is great for for us and and um and i think that's what listeners really want to hear about is like wh- why does this actually matter why does this field of behavioral science matter outside of the labs or just in terms of making money you know there's lots of reasons that behavioral science can be used really positively and i think you're a good example of someone who's doing that in a really interesting way across a range of different areas so thank you for doing what you do and yeah. Um, thanks thanks i feel like the perfect misfit (laughs) (laughs) well then you're on with the perfect misfit because i shouldn't be on here either but um aline thanks so much and um i'll let you get back to your day and and stay safe stay stay connected and um stay inside thank you you too i'll talk to you later okay just wanted to say thanks again there to aline i think that was a really interesting show i certainly enjoyed recording it with her i think she's got a really great background and particularly well placed for this show Uh, we'll be back again next month um, with another interesting guest who is working in the field of changing people's behavior in the real world in the meantime don't forget you can go to bsphn.org.uk 
to join for just £25 if you're working, £10 if you're a student or not working. Um, the benefits that you get from that are discounted fees for events. Um, well, obviously, there's not many events going on at the moment, but they'll, they'll come back in the future, I'm sure. Uh, workshops and CPD sessions, access to the network, which is one of the most valuable parts of the EBSPHN, in my opinion. They do regular publications and they provide all the footage from their recent events and presentations. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and my views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work but having fun whilst doing it. Uh, we've also got quite a lot of stuff on there at the moment about coronavirus. So if, you, if you're looking for support for people that you're working with, whether it's content about staying healthy, staying active uh, or about behaviour change stuff that we're, we're putting out at the moment regarding you know not watching too much tv or that type of stuff then get yourself to busybodies.com and check out our content um if you enjoyed the podcast please leave a review on itunes or whichever podcast medium you're listening to this on it will just take you less than a minute and it really is good to, to sort of move us up the rankings and help other people discover this show uh, and learn about all the great work that's going on in the behavioral sciences if you want to get hold of me i'm on twitter at stew underscore king underscore hh uh, or you can just add me on linkedin Stuart king uh, and i look forward to hearing from you stay safe stay active and most of all stay home mm-hmm.